Coronavirus New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. Welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Friday, March the 27th. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. We're journalists with stuff and we're just getting to the end of our first week of Coronavirus NZ. Each day we take a look at the day's news, especially Kiwi news, and then zoom in for a closer look at some story connected to the COVID-19 crisis. You get glimpses every now and again, don't you, of the magnitude of what we're going through and sometimes you get a bit emotional about it. I was talking to a mate, really good mate last night, who's a healthcare worker. He was just getting home, putting in the driveway and before he could go inside, he was going to have to strip off the clothes that he was wearing, put them in for a hot, hot, hot wash, leave his shoes outside in the garage and then have a shower before he could go inside and hug his family for the day. It's just, you know, it's... A reminder of the magnitude of what we're doing, what we're going through, and you know what the the sacrifices that people are making for us. And of course, the consequences of the country not taking these kind of measures are, are dire. Later on, we've got an interview with Charlie Mitchell. He's a national correspondent for Stuff, and recently filed a really interesting feature looking at the past pandemic that has helped us prepare for this one. That's the 1918 influenza epidemic that tore through the world's population, including New Zealand, just as the First World War was ending. But first, what's happened today? 85 new cases in the past 24 hours, which takes us to 368 in total. 37 people have recovered. We do have our first case of a person in intensive care. So officials say the person is at Nelson Hospital being ventilated. They had significant underlying health conditions. The US now has more cases of COVID-19 than any other country, overtaking China. Police have made their first pandemic arrest. The man was stopped twice by the police without having just cause for being on the street, allegedly. He will be charged with driving offences. And there's more information coming in about these clusters in New Zealand, clusters of cases. There's the Marist College in Auckland, the Ruby Princess cruise ship, uh, which was in the Hawke's Bay, and a wedding in the Lower North Island. Um, There's also this cattle conference in the South Island. Hamish McNeely, a staff reporter based in Dunedin, has been investigating the World Hereford Conference outbreak in Queenstown. Hamish, can you tell us what was the conference and what have you found out about the attendees' movements? Okay, um, so the World Hereford uh, Conference attracted about 400 people uh, from all around the world. Uh, we've got Europe, uh, South America, United States, United Kingdom, Ireland, Australia, and uh, Uruguay. Um, they all came out to Queenstown um, to discuss everything Hereford, which is a breed of cattle. It's those ones with the white face you may have seen in paddocks. Ah, uh, those ones, um, yep. Yeah, yeah. Good work. yeah, they came out here for a conference between the, uh, I think it was the 9th and 13th, and which is about two weeks ago, and they um, had pre-conference tours and post-conference tours, and those went all around the country from uh, all throughout the North Island to the South Island. So now we're seeing this uh, play out in real time, I guess, with where these um, – uh, COVID-19 cases are appearing. The number of pot- people potentially infected must be huge. Sure. And like this is one of the significant clusters so far identified in the country. I mean, there's another one of similar numbers in Auckland, but it's a school. So I guess the limited, the contacts are, are more limited, I guess. There's a lot of overlapping there. Whereas, the, whereas this one, we've got farmers 
well, I'm saying farmers, they, they generally are farmers from all around the country, from other countries around the world, and who they've liaised with. So, for example, we can see that they've gone to, at one point, the Wanaka AMP show, uh, which sounds small, but this this is an event that can attract 40,000 people over a weekend. Do, have we established patient zero, as it, as it were? Do, do you know where it came from? There was initially one person identified from overseas who became ill uh, from Australia. So he returned back to Australia a few days later. He, I think four days later, he uh, tested positive for uh, coronavirus. Um, there was also another man, I guess because of time delay, it probably took a wee bit longer, but from Uruguay and maybe language barriers. Um, so there's two of those. So we think it's come in from either one of those. Uh, hard to say because there were a lot of international attendees and maybe the reporting was was left. There was a lot left uh, to be desired, I guess, yeah. uh, from those international agencies. And from your reporting, it seems there was some real confusion in the early stages about the risks. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, t- I, I tracked down the um, conference organiser and event organiser. They, they were based in uh, Queenstown. They're now in isolation. Uh, the woman's pregnant. Uh, they've got a young child. Uh, they've had, they liquidated their company uh, about a week ago. So obviously a traumatic time uh, for mm. them. They said they put some the necessary steps. This was all starting to unfold o- overseas. They could see it, I guess, happening. They went to the, the people, their client effectively, and they said, do you still want to hold it? These are some of the concerns. And that they try to mitigate those factors by, you know, putting in, uh, telling people if they were sick not to come, telling people if they were um, to do uh, sanitisation and, and wash their hands, all those sort of messages that we we were told about initially in those early stages. And then I guess everything hit when they found out after the conference finished that one of those people, the Australian, had tested positive. And so they have to sort of work backwards. But working backwards was difficult. When they told the Ministry of Health officials via District Council uh, representative, they were told just to continue on with their tour, even though that a person who had previously been for the conference uh, was sick. And they believed it was safe to continue on that journey. Well, in hindsight, that's proven to be incorrect. Well, thank you very much for your reporting on the story, and uh, we'll see how it develops. Okay, thanks. We've been talking a lot about numbers, like we're actually a little bit obsessed about them, the number of cases, the overseas death toll, but there are some other pretty important numbers too. Westpac has done a analysis of the impact of the pandemic on the economy. Listen to these, 200,000 jobs expected to go, 7% of the workforce will be impacted and the economic activity is going to shrink by a third and unemployment is going to hit high single digits for the first time since the 1990s. And of course, in the the US, where the population is seventy times bigger, and the the economy even more so, uh, the numbers numbers <laughs> just get crazy. So three point two eight million Americans filed for unemployment this week, last week rather, um, more than quadruple the previous record set in nineteen eighty two. Hey, listen to this. I'll just put a bit of stuff into the future guests file. Okay. Hey, Adam. Yeah. While you're eating your apple, can you mute your mic because it's really loud? All right. That's a small insight into the world of remotely producing a podcast during the pandemic with a permanent video conferencing connection. 
Thank you very much Thanks for saving that precious moment, Eugene. Yeah, it's always right. nice to, to keep an archive of the things that really matter. <laughs> right, so we are two days. Well, I think we're just going to have to keep on saying this. The compression of time that's happening during this whole thing is just bizarre. It's yeah. two days since we went into this four week or however long it's going to be lockdown. And it feels like about about nine days. But anyway, we're two days in. Um, and already our social norms and protocols are having to change. We now know from Police Commissioner Mike Bush when he was giving his speech about um, how he's going to run a very nice police state. Um we can go for runs, but when you go for your run, you need to basically step out your front door and go as far as your feet will carry you. No driving to your run. Yeah, you got you got to start and finish at home. So for me, my beloved Riverhead Forest or the Tahinga Track out at Mutawai, they're out of reach. Luckily, I'm a trot around the block kind of guy. Anyway, the beach is about one k away. Anyway, so Bush clarified the law: you are allowed to run, but it's kind of more than that because there's the etiquette part as well. How do you behave when you're doing the run? Because obviously we have to we have to keep the social distance, so you don't want to get closer than two metres to anybody. Obviously you're not meant to be arranging to meet anyone. Actually there was this um, rather lovely tweet I saw where somebody was saying, uh, just out, saw uh, a young couple who were clearly pretending to exercise in order to be able to meet with each other. Um, it was a lovely moment. I almost had a tear in my eye as I phoned the police. <laughs> anyway, I'm presuming that was actually satire. Well, actually, I've, I've no idea. Might not. <laughs> I've no idea yeah. if that was satire. Actually, I'm pretty sure that was a, it was a UK um, person tweeting, but um, I didn't check to be. In truth, I didn't check. Um, one friend of mine in the UK who's in, you know, they're not in quite the same kind of lockdown as us, but comparable, um, who is a bit of an ultra marathon man, and he was talking about his way of dealing with well, obviously he was keeping social distance, but he was saying that his trick when he's crossing past another runner, he holds his breath because if he breathes in, he's putting himself in danger from the other person potentially, and if he breathes out, he's putting them in danger. So holding a breath is a beautiful middle path. I've actually seen a little bit of archibachi in the UK. I think because there's more people, and yep. there's a tension growing between runners and walkers. Well, yes. I mean, this morning when I was running, um, there are pretty narrow paths. Uh, there's sort of, a, I think it's called a causeway mm. thing round between a couple of the bays on the shore. And it's pretty wide, so you could certainly just get past it. But I, I seemed to be going in the opposite direction to every other runner. So I just pretty much stood to one side and let everyone pass and then went through. But yeah, it's 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 kind of curious. One one thing though is the roads are all entirely empty of cars. So quite a lot of people are right running in the gutter. Anyway, it's getting kind of complicated. It's like a big complicated um dance where everyone's trying to get in the right the right way around. It's causing a lot of I mean I'm I'm you know follow a few I'm in a few um social media running groups as it were and there's a lot of confusion and debate and division actually and you know some people accusing others of trying to find loopholes around it and it it has been a little bit confusing, to be honest. Uh, the messaging hasn't been straightforward, but I think it's pretty clear now. It's run from home, don't go stupid, don't go running crazily far from your home, and just be sensible. Well, actually, that's that's an option for you because um, as listeners to your other podcast may be aware, you did do a 100. <laughs> oh, yes, let's, let's name it. Let's, let's, make, let's be straightforward here. Dirt Church Radio, yep. Eugene's other podcast, 
you ran a hundred miles the other day, all in one go. So well, I don't know. You've you might have done the math. Was that is that true? Yes, I did. I did. I did. But I'm not about to run 80k's out and 80k's back from home for a number of reasons. One of which is I've got a dodgy calf because of running that far. Well, not actually, no. To be fair, it's not because of that. It's because I started running too soon afterwards. I feel like we are getting way off the track here. Did yeah. you go for a run today, Adam? Yeah, indeed I did. And the great thing about getting out for a little run is you do get to sort of see this this post-apocalyptic world we're living in. Um, mm. You know, I uh, was wondering, you know, whether to do the zombie arms out the front, but um, that seemed impolite and possibly a little bit silly. But just all the, the, the roads, empty of traffic, I've never seen Marangi Bay. Well, there's Paper Moon in Marangi Bay as a, as a particularly successful little eatery on, on a roundabout, and it's never empty. In fact, it's always full, and um, it's shut now. What else did I see? I saw a teddy bear in a window. We've got one of those. Oh, We've got very good. Do you know We've about explain, that? Explain, explain, you explain the teddy bears to me. Yeah, it's, it's um, people putting teddy bears in their windows so that kids who are out with their parents for a walk can go on a teddy bear hunt, as it were, and spot teddy bears in windows. So, yeah, we have one. Excellent. I'm never going to see it because you're too far away for me to run and I'm not allowed to drive. I'll send you a anyway. picture. Send me, send me a picture. Yeah. And in fact, let's use that. I think we've found the picture for our stuff post today. There you go. And the other thing I saw uh, which, which amused me was there's a shoe shop down in Maring, at the Maringi Bay shops uh, and, and somebody's put up a, a little anti-looting sign which says, our display stock is right shoes only. <laughs> So that's a message for you would-be looters. If you're coming to Marangi Bay to, to fill your boots with unguarded shops, don't even bother with the shoe shop. Just it's fill your right, right shoes right only. Boots. Mm. Actually, there might be a matching shop somewhere else in the city, which is only left shoes. Um, so we get, before we get to the important, um, uh, our regular famous people in fiction news, there's some, a few important matters uh, from the world of social media. I, I got one. I got one. Um, okay. It's the dangers of Zoom meetings at home. And I think I yeah. sent you the link there, Adam. Do you want to have a look you, at it? You have sent me the link. I will open the file. Okay, so what do we have here? Like right. It's, it's, it's a YouTube clip and there are a bunch of people in a Zoom really meeting. Just, like, Most of them are stationary heads, but one woman is walking around her house. She has put the phone down and... Right, she's like, taken off her pants and like she's sitting on a toilet. That oftentimes people the other people in the Zoom call like are just starting to notice. What happened? I saw nothing. <laughs> uh, I could have probably guessed what was going to come when I saw the, ti with the title of this, this <laughs> clip, which is actually, woman forgets she's still on camera and starts pooping during her Zoom meeting, which yep. is, along with the accents, I think is enough to tell us that this is yep. clearly, clearly yep. an American clip. I think if you play it on a little bit more, they say one of the star, one of the attendees says, "Oh, Jennifer, so don't be Jennifer in your in your video meetings. Do not be Jennifer." Let, let's hear that. Oh my God, poor Jennifer! <laughs> <laughs> or is she saying poor Jennifer? It, it's all the same. Crikey, Dick. Okay. That's something to remember. The marvellous thing about this podcast is we do have editing capacities, so any toilet-related recordings will be dealt with in the edit suite. Right, today, in our regular Famous People in Fiction news, New Zealand's Chief Human Rights Commissioner, Paul Hunt, has got it. Yeah, so he'd been overseas for work. He came back self-isolated 
got himself tested um, very sensibly, and he was in the car park of his doctors, and it came back positive. So, but it seems like he's okay, and he's doing the right things. Right, our regular plague playlist. Actually, it's not been called plague playlist until just now, but it is oh, now. Is sort of sputtering. This is our um, a, a repeated feature of people sending in the music which you should be playing during a pandemic. So once we've got an email address, um, we're going to be perish the thought, encouraging listener participation. <laughs> listener participation. So we'll see how that goes. In the meantime, obviously, let's stick with "Don't Stand So Close to Me." But moving on from that. There is this magnificent song out of Uganda. The bad news is that everyone is a potential victim. But the good news is that everyone is a potential solution. Sensitize the masses to sanitize. Keep a social distance and... I really like. So this was posted on Twitter by a guy called Bobby Wine. Bobby Wine is known as the ghetto president. He's a popular Ugandan musician turned parliament member. So there you go. He's an MP. Seems like they have quite cool MPs in Uganda. Is that a challenge for Winston Peters? I think it is. So here's a quote. If Greymouth follows your advice, the people will be depressed and more liable to catch the disease. Face the trouble with determination and carry on. Uh, That was a New Zealand health minister overruling the Greymouth mayor who had wanted to shut down his town to protect it from a pandemic. It was frankly terrible advice. It's one of the amazing nuggets from a piece Stuff National correspondent Charlie Mitchell has recently filed. He looked at the 1918 influenza epidemic in a story that he stitched together looking at Papers Past, which is an incredible online newspaper archive. He also looked at the book Black November by Dr. Jeff Rice. What he came up with was a really interesting piece because as you read it, you can't help but think of the parallels to today. So Charlie, just give us the big picture of the 1918 pandemic. What was it? Where was it? Who got hit? Well, it was called the the Spanish flu, uh, quite strangely, because it did not originate in Spain. And the reason it was called the Spanish flu was because at the time there was a lot of wartime censorship in place where where newspapers were limited from, from publishing certain things. And Spain was neutral, and um, there was no limitation, essentially, on, on reporting deaths from, from this new flu that had emerged. So it seemed like Spain was particularly hard hit by this uh, emerging pandemic, even though it really wasn't. But that is why it was called the Spanish flu. Didn't, um, didn't the, the king of Spain even get the flu, I think? Yes, yes, he did. Oh. I, I think that helped uh, publicise it even further and, and sort of entrench this idea that it was distinctly Spanish when it wasn't. Um, it actually started, I think, in Kansas, in the United States, is, is where it's believed to have originated. But the important thing to know about the, the 1918 pandemic was is that there were several waves. There were at least three of them. And the first wave wasn't too bad. It was the second wave uh, that seems to have mutated from the first wave um, on the Western Front in Europe. It was a kind of more severe version of the first yeah. of the first strain. And this happened on the Western Front, um, kind of around August of 1918, just as the war was ending. And this is the one that spread around the world and and, and caused all this damage. And and the death toll was around 50 million uh, worldwide. But New Zealand uh, managed to get the second wave of influenza starting at the end of October of 1918. And it came into the country, uh, starting in Auckland, from all the the soldiers returning from the Western Front. 
they were obviously very keen to get home, so they got off the ship and got onto a train and, and went all over the country back to their homes, and and from there it just kind of spread everywhere. And so, when did it? When was the worst time in New Zealand for this for the outbreak? The day with the most deaths was actually November twelfth, which was the date of the armistice. Nearly three hundred people died on that day in Auckland alone. The kind of interesting thing about how this affected New Zealand was that it was very, very quick. Um, we're, we're talking about six weeks uh, mm-hmm. from beginning to end. Um, and in that time around, the, the exact number isn't known, but it's around 9,000 New Zealanders died um, in a very, very short space of time. And it was the first two weeks of November was really was really where it hit the hardest. And that's why it's called Black November what sort of lessons, I guess, could we learn from 1918? How closely can you compare them anyway? I mean, COVID-19 isn't an influenza, but even though it is a respiratory illness. Well, there aren't many uh, good lessons to learn. Uh, the, the response was was a disaster, essentially. There, there was no preparation whatsoever. They, they, there were early reports from Europe that lots of people were dying from the flu, um, hundreds of thousands of people, but they were largely ignored. By the time the influenza was established in New Zealand, there was very little containment or any capacity to deal with it. It just sort of spread uh, exponentially around the country. Uh, I think the main lesson we can learn from it is that this is sort of a a picture of what happens when you don't flatten the curve. Uh, I guess we're all familiar with that terminology nowadays. But, But essentially what happened is this very, very virulent strain of the flu came into the country and it just immediately spread everywhere and just destroyed the medical system. It was almost like a, like a bomb had been dropped on it. There was absolutely no capacity to deal with something like this. That's kind of why it, was, um, it happened in such a short time frame because roughly one-third to one-half of the country got it uh, within this very short period of time. The big problem was just the, the lack of infrastructure to deal with it. Um, the, the hospitals were immediately overwhelmed. There weren't enough doctors, there weren't enough nurses. Um, in a lot of cases, many of the patients in the hospitals were the nurses because they were on the front lines and they, mm. they got it, they were too sick to work. Um, and you had the situation where lots of volunteers were called in to run sort of community hospitals and, and places like school halls and uh, community centres and, and even in some rural areas they use the, the grandstands and the, on the local race course as a, as a temporary hospital um, and these were run by, by just regular people who, yeah. who were not nurses, they weren't doctors, they had no medical specialty whatsoever. In your reporting, did you get any sense if the literal 1918 flu epidemic landed you know, right now, if that was the disease we were facing? I'm presuming we'd deal with it rather better than they did in 1918 just because of technological advances, yeah? Absolutely, yes. No, without without question. Um, the, the key thing is the lack of antibiotics back then. They hadn't even discovered it yet. Um, a lot of the people who died of the influenza pandemic, I mean, they didn't die of the influenza itself. They died of pneumonia, the secondary infection. And nowadays you can treat pneumonia with antibiotics. Um, it has a fairly high survival rate. Our... Hospital infrastructure is much, much better. Um, I calculated that we have roughly five times as many 
doctors now as we did back then. Mm. And we have this pandemic response plan, which was kind of generated explicitly in response to the 1918 outbreak. It, it, it's very much deliberately uh, kind of preparing for that situation happening again. And that was one of the key problems back then is they had no plan or, or mm. really no awareness that this would happen. Um, whereas now, obviously, we have we have this experience which has enlightened us in a lot of ways. Communities did take some matters into their own hand, didn't they? There was You reported on the East Coast uh, sort of almost cutting itself off. Absolutely, yeah. There were local examples of, of communities doing very well at keeping out the virus. And one of them was Te Araroa on the East Cape, uh, where locals just took guns and, and stood on the road and blocked anyone from coming in. And it seems to have worked. Uh, another good example is the Coromandel, which is sort of highlighted as by far the best response to it, at least in a, at a local level. Um, they had a very proactive medical officer of health there who immediately upon hearing the reports in Auckland uh, took significant steps to stop it from coming in. So there was a regular steamship coming from Auckland uh, with passengers on it and any time it arrived, he quarantined anyone who was on the ship for 24 hours. He kind of set up roadblocks coming into the Coromandel and anyone who had a high temperature was sent back. And, and for that reason, the Coromandel had virtually zero deaths from this pandemic. Wow. He went straight to a le- alert level four by the sounds of it in yeah, today's, today's yeah, language. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to some more coverage from you as this pandemic unfolds. No problem. Thanks very much. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Friday the 27th of March. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Charlie Mitchell, Hamish McNeely, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. We are on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz, and at all the podcast apps you could ever imagine. So go on, subscribe. You can even do one of those five-star review thingies on Apple Podcasts if you like. Thank you for joining us for our first week. It's a weekend like we've never had before, but stay safe and well. Enjoy it if you can. Tofa soy for. Tofa soy for.